Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my book project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the Scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That way you get better accountability and richer discussion. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but I'm aiming at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet gotten into the great Word of God. If this is you, get a few friends to join you. If this isn't you, I'll bet you have a few friends in that boat, so why don't you get them together and work through the Word Diet together. More information is available about the book project at thoroughlyequipped.org. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible, so please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. Today we're in the book of Joshua, the book that awakened me to the power and applicability of the Old Testament, in particular the fruit and the fight of Canaan, and it led to my book on Joshua, Inheriting Our Promised Land. And so these episodes are, in essence, an extended audio version of that book. We've mostly finished the discussion of the land allocation and inheritance for Israel in the Promised Land in Joshua 13 through 19. And throughout the study, we've drawn analogies to how this relates to the Christian life, the victorious Christian life, as we look to inherit the promised land that we've been given. And so we've started into a far lengthier discussion of what that inheritance is and is not. We opened by talking about the language of inheritance in the New Testament, and we talked about why it's important to understand both what is and what is not in the inheritance And now we move into a detailed discussion about what that inheritance is not. If we don't understand what it is not, then we're going to have improper expectations of what God says that he has given us. So let's get to the details of that discussion. First, God does not promise us good health. Look no further than the example of Job to realize that obedience is not perfectly correlated with avoiding physical malady. Consider also the life of Paul. He had an unspecified thorn in the flesh that many commentators suspect was a health concern. Despite his many passionate prayers, for example, 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, implying the severity of the malady given his ability to withstand so much else, God wanted him to persevere through the symptoms. In Galatians 4, 13 through 15, Paul writes about his illness, which had also been a trial to the Galatians. And Galatians 6.11 implies that he had trouble with his eyes. His disciple Timothy also suffered from chronic health problems, with Paul counseling him to drink wine for his stomach and frequent illnesses in 1 Timothy 5.23. For us, it may be cancer, migraines, a stillborn child, arthritis, or the many other maladies that strike the human body in a fallen world. And not that one can explain away all disease, but after the fact, we often see the reasons for our struggles— whether for God to get our attention as non-Christians, to strengthen our faith as Christians, or to display our faith in the midst of difficult circumstances. Second, God does not promise us wealth. Scripture repeatedly underlines the fact that material abundance is not at all guaranteed as a component of abundant Christian living. Again, consider Job. In the midst of his financial loss, he declares, "...the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised." Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In 2 Corinthians 8, 1-4, Paul describes the extreme poverty of the Macedonian churches. In Philippians 4, 11-13, Paul describes his contentedness, whether in need or in plenty. 
And whether rain is meant to be a bad or a good thing, Christ promised that God sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous in Matthew 5.45. And is wealth necessarily that much of a blessing? It certainly allows one a more comfortable earthly existence, but its ability to do so is limited. Wealth is at best a mixed blessing since it may well lead to complacency, pride, and so on. Although it provides greater opportunity to do good works for the kingdom, many wealthy people find it considerably more difficult to depend on God at all. After all, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, as Jesus said in Matthew 19, 23, and 24. We see this in 1 Timothy 6 as well, where wealth can be a snare, but it also provides great opportunity. So a balanced approach to wealth is important, but for our purposes here, Wealth is, at best, a mixed blessing and certainly not something that is promised in our inheritance. Likewise, all worldly physical blessings, beauty, athleticism, intellect, are mixed blessings. Ironically, all of them encourage dependence on the gift rather than giving glory to the giver. And those who have these gifts often base their identity on the gifts and have their identity based on the gifts by others. For example, if you are physically attractive, it is difficult to discern whether people are attracted to you because of who you are or what you look like. Third, God does not promise domestic bliss with our family and friends. In fact, some of our relationships may be damaged, even fatally so, over Christianity. We're all familiar with Christ's famous injunction that we must take up our cross and follow him. In Matthew's account of this in chapter 10, the exhortation is directly preceded by Christ's warning about family relationships in the kingdom. Do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. In the ministry of Jesus, Mark 3, verses 20 and 21, and then 31 through 35 are especially powerful, I think, here. Gideon's commission in Judges 6 also fits the bill here, going up against his father. And then it's interesting that Christ gives responsibility for his mother to John, not his brothers, in John 19. So the animosity, or separation at least, can develop at any level of the Christian life. Those who convert to Christianity, especially within some countries and from some religious faiths, can face incredible persecution from family and friends, on matters of what should be simple and unthreatening obedience, for example, adult baptism following conversion, new believers, again, must often deal with surprising levels of grief from those who love them, so to speak. Throughout the Christian life, such occasions can easily arise with family and friends as one obeys God, an unwillingness to cheat in business practices, providing godly counsel to those who have strayed, eschewing materialism, embracing a particular spiritual discipline, confronting hypocrisy, and so on. Beyond health, wealth, and popularity, the list could go on a while longer. God does not promise us that our rights, so to speak, will be respected. He does not promise us temporal security or earthly comfort. He does not promise us personal advancement in our careers. He does not promise that we will get married or be happily married, and so on. Instead, he calls us to obedience in the midst of whatever circumstances we face, prepared for battle, depending on his provision, and participating to the best of our ability. Christ is not our bridge over troubled waters, but our way through troubled waters. As in Joshua, we're not called to the dissatisfaction and the monotony of the wilderness, but the fruit and the fight of the promised land. 
Fortunately, in all of this, we have a Savior who can ably identify with our trials. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, in Isaiah 53, 3. But if he was familiar with suffering, we cannot expect to be unfamiliar with it. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him, Paul writes in Philippians 1, 29. We are not promised that we will be able to avoid suffering. In fact, we are promised trials and suffering. Do not be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering, as if something strange were happening to you, 1 Peter 4.12. But we are promised that we will not be given more than we can bear, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10.13, and we are instructed to go through those trials in a way that honors God, to consider them pure joy, and to convert them into perseverance and character, as in James 1.2-4. We could certainly talk at greater length about what's not promised to us, and that is important, but I've provided a good discussion of our misunderstandings and discouragements, at least some of the top issues. So what are we promised by God? What is our inheritance? Let's start with what we're promised in heaven. Because we're temporal creatures, our first concern is usually about our inheritance for the here and now. That said, when times are especially tough, we need more than here and now to give us hope. And of course, the part of our eternal life that will be in heaven and the quality of that life are a vital part of our inheritance. But what will life in heaven be like? We don't know many precise details, apparently because heaven will be far too wonderful to put into words. We do know that although the stereotypical image of heaven is of us floating on clouds while playing harps, it certainly will not be boring or anticlimactic in any way. I talk about this in great detail in episodes 25 through 27 of The Word Die, so I don't want to recreate that wheel, but I do want to cover some of the basics quickly. First, heaven will be an infinitely splendid home. It will rival or probably exceed Eden. It will be a place of majesty and intimacy, pictured alternatively as a city built by God and a house where Christ has prepared a room for us in Hebrews 11, 9 through 16. And John 14, verses 2 and 3. Revelation 21 provides the most vivid description of what will be and what will not be in heaven. The city will be prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. It's brilliance like that of a very precious jewel. And in that city, the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. As a result, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Second, we will have an amazingly glorified body. When Christ returns, he will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body, Paul writes in Philippians 3, 20 and 21. And those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever, we read in Daniel 12, verse 3. Paul gives us more detail about this in 1 Corinthians 15, saying that the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another, and that our bodies will all be changed from perishable flesh and blood to that which is imperishable, from mortal to immortal. Third, we will be given eternally magnificent rewards. Believers will be judged at the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done in the body, whether good or bad, 2 Corinthians 5.10. In 1 Corinthians 3.11-15, Paul tells us that all believers are building on the foundation, which is Jesus Christ, If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. 
If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. In other words, both types of men will be saved, but only the one who builds well will receive a reward over and above eternal life. Apparently, our degree of enjoyment within heaven is dependent on the quality of our character and our life's work. As an aside, I might add as well that Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven, is excellent on these topics. A great verse to consider when studying rewards in heaven is the Master's commendation in Matthew 25, 21. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. This verse indicates that God's faithful servants will receive special commendations, a special name, special possessions, special position, and a special level of happiness. Other verses concur with these themes. In each letter to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, the overcomers are given a special commendation. In two of those cases, the overcomer is given a special name, a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it in chapter 2, verse 17, and Christ's new name and the name of my God written on him in chapter 3, verse 12. The same two passages also speak to a special level of happiness and intimacy with God. The name will be known only to Christ and the person, and the names will be written on the person by Christ, and the person will be a pillar in the temple of my God. The idea of our special possessions are a more prominent theme in Scripture. Matthew 6, 19-21 speaks of treasures in heaven. Hebrews 10, 34-36 speaks of better and lasting possessions, being richly rewarded and receiving what God has promised. In 1 Corinthians 9, 24 and 25, Paul talks about the prize and allows us to introduce the most commonly heavenly possession, crowns. There's a crown of righteousness, 2 Timothy 4, 8, a crown of life, James 1.12, Revelation 2.10, and a crown of glory, 1 Thessalonians 2.19 and 20, 1 Peter 5.2-4, and Philippians 4.1. There are two ironies about the crowns. First, they are commensurate with the extent to which one is a living sacrifice here, and the crowns will be sacrificed to Christ when we get to heaven. Second, we only have crowns because, to some degree, we allowed Christ to work in us, Of course, then, it is fitting that the crowns be given to glorify Christ. Scripture also speaks repeatedly to a special position in heaven for those who walk with God while on earth. Of course, Adam had responsibilities in the garden. Matthew 5.19 speaks of being least and greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In Luke's version of Matthew's parable of the talents, the faithful servants are placed in charge of multiple cities in chapter 19, verse 17. In Luke 22:28-30, Christ tells the disciples that they may eat and drink at his table in the kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. In 1 Corinthians 6, 1-3, Paul says we will judge angels in the world. In 2 Timothy 2:12, Paul says if we endure, we will also reign with him. And in Revelation, the overcomers are given authority over the nations in chapter 2, verses 26 and 27, and the right to sit with Christ on his throne in chapter 3, verse 21. We're not sure what this position entails, other than some sense of privilege, responsibility, trust, and authority, and we're not sure when it begins, whether in Christ's kingdom on earth now, a literal or figurative millennial reign on earth, Revelation 20, or both. Finally, notice the basis of the reward given to the servant. He was good and faithful. Taken beyond a merely secular sense of the word, good implies a profound depth of character, In contrast, the bad servant in the parable of the talents is described as wicked and lazy. 
more difficult to accomplish than merely good, the term faithful implies a notable degree of consistency. Note that when Christ offers the disciples a place at the table in his kingdom, he had just commended them for standing by him in his trials in Luke 22. Just before Paul says he's looking forward to receiving a crown of righteousness, he said, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith in 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8. Just before we're told about the better and lasting possessions in Hebrews 10, the writer has told us about perseverance in the face of suffering, public insult, and the confiscation of property, and again, remember the overcomers of Revelation 2 and 3. In all of this, the greatness of heaven is held out as a hope for us to embrace as we seek to conquer our promised land, particularly in the face of strong and hostile enemies. The heroes of the faith responded to this promise. If we keep our perspective on that hope, we too will be able to be good and faithful servants, investing in the things of eternity. As the writer of Hebrews challenges us in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, after recording the lives of so many ancient heroes of the faith in chapter 11, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. This is not some vague wishful thinking, but rather a confident assurance of what will happen. Because we know how the story ends, we should be eager to invest all of the eggs in our retirement basket, so to speak, into eternal investments. There's no risk, eternally speaking, and you can't beat the rate of return. In a word, we must keep a focus on the promise of heaven, as has been said often, Where we focus our eyes will greatly determine the way we live our lives. It's time to take a break. Please check out Proclaim from Pure Radio, Kentuckiana's Christian Community Bulletin, available online at pureradio.org and with free paper editions in store at 200 locations. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, the station of this show. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the previous segment, we talked about our inheritance in Christ, both what it is not and what it is with respect to heaven. But aside from heaven, what is our inheritance on earth in the here and now? What does it mean when Christ says that we are meant to have life and have it to the full in John 10.10? Eternal life is a matter of quality as well as quantity, and it has already begun for believers. In practice, what difference does the imputed righteousness of Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit make in my life today? First, we're given a new security. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in the Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. The great passage in 1 John 5, 11 through 13. That security is not based on us doing enough works, banking enough credit on some cosmic balance sheet. It's not what we've done for him, but what he's done for us that matters. An assurance of salvation does not require any particular works, but this should not be interpreted as a call to cheap grace. The type of faith that saves us will result in the good works which we are created in Christ Jesus to do, as per Ephesians 2.10. Second, we are given a new perspective and new priorities. In addition to the hope of heaven, our changed heart gives us a new earthly hope under the new covenant of better fulfilling the divine mandates to love God and to love others. Moreover, we are given a commission in the kingdom of God, new purpose and new priorities. 
We're called to go and make disciples by baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything that Jesus commanded in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, the Great Commission. We're to be instruments of righteousness since we have been redeemed from the empty way of life we were leading, as per Romans 6.13 and 1 Peter 1.18. A proper perspective in our new priorities should lead us to a proper motivation, love over duty, a zeal to obey God and love others, humility and understanding our place in the divine economy, and diligent effort in all of the above. Third, we're given a new identity. In terms of our justification, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Paul writes in Romans 5.8. And God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5.21. What an amazing thought. In terms of our sanctification, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If we understand our identity in God's eyes, then we will more easily be able to fulfill his purpose for us as well. Perhaps the most powerful example of this comes in Ephesians, where Paul devotes the first half of the epistle to our identity and resources in Christ before turning in the second half to our responsibilities in Christ. Fourth, we're given a new prosperity, the unsearchable riches of Christ, Ephesians 3.8. Paul provides a beautiful overview of this in his opening to Ephesians, praising God who has blessed us in the heavenly realm with every spiritual blessing in Christ, chapter 1, verse 3. Note that the blessings are in Christ. They're past tense. He has blessed us. They're all we need. They're every blessing, and they are spiritual blessings. As noted earlier, we're not promised material blessings like health and wealth. Instead, we're promised greater things, love that surpasses knowledge, how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, joy in spite of trials and suffering versus mere happiness based on happenstance, which can be taken away, peace that transcends all understanding, confidence and self-control from a spirit of power and of self-discipline rather than a spirit of timidity, and so on. With a prosperity like this, we can hope to be seen as Paul saw the Thessalonians, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in chapter 1, verse 3 of 1 Thessalonians. This prosperity comes from the perspective that Paul expressed in Philippians 1.21, to live as Christ and to die as gain. Our time on earth is Christ. What could be more awesome? By a matter of degree, only our greater intimacy with Christ in heaven. An understanding of all this starts with our identity in Christ and having that properly placed. We're children of God. We're not slaves. We're sons. And ultimately, we're heirs. And that heirs involves an inheritance. We have a good and great father. So he's not going to just hand out resources willy-nilly because those resources may not be in our best interest or they may not be in the best interest of the kingdom. He has the long-term in mind, eternity in fact, and he has his entire kingdom in mind. And so the blessings that are handed out are connected to context, history, time, place. And for us individually, ourselves and the people we're around, All of those influence what that inheritance is going to look like in the here and now. God wants us to be blessed as we can handle it, and he wants it to be in the service of his kingdom, helping us and helping others. We may be blessed so that we can bless others, back to Genesis 12, and ultimately it's not about the material anyway. It's ultimately the spiritual blessings that are of greatest importance and value to us, love, joy, and peace. Are we relying on those things? Do we know about them? Do we invest in them? 
And then do we take what we've been given to invest in the kingdom, loving God and loving others around us? Lord, we thank you for your goodness and greatness. We thank you for the great inheritance you've given us in Christ Jesus and through your spirit. We lift all of our praise up to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Time to take a break. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. We've been using the inheritance of the Israelites in their promised land as a springboard for our discussion of the believer's inheritance in our promised land. First, we looked at the text in Joshua 13 through 19 that detailed Israel's inheritance. Then we looked at our inheritance in Christ as believers. We focused on why inheritance is such a key and powerful concept by itself. Then we talked about what's not in the inheritance before focusing on what is in the inheritance, both with respect to heaven and the abundant life that we're promised in Christ Jesus. Now we need to discuss the factors that hinder progress and the characteristics that encourage progress in claiming our inheritance. And so some of the Israelite tribes turn out to provide great examples of what not to do in our pursuit of the promised land. And then after that, we'll talk about the faith and character of Caleb to teach us lessons on how to succeed in the promised land. As we talked about earlier, the discussion of Joshua 13 through 19, these seven chapters would probably not be at the top of your list of passages to memorize, study, or even to read. But one of the wonderful things about Scripture is that all of it is there for a reason. There's often an abundance of treasure to be found even in such obscure and seemingly mundane passages. We saw this principle in action earlier when we noted that Rahab is listed in the lineage of Christ. Here it turns out that buried in the details of these chapters, there are multiple principles that illustrate how not to take the promised land, both for Israel and for us. And for this chapter in my book, chapter 14, I'm deeply indebted to sermons by Dwight Edwards, my pastor in Texas years ago at Grace Bible Church when I was in grad school. And the discussion here comes mostly out of the sermon he preached a long time ago back in Texas. So the first category is peaceful coexistence with sin. In Joshua 13, 13, we're told that the Israelites did not drive out the people of Geshur and Makkah, so they continue to live among the Israelites to this day, the day in which the book of Joshua was written. Why the Israelites did not is not made clear by the passage. The text reads as if there was not even an effort to drive out the Canaanites, implying that they did not think it was worth the effort. This could be because they underestimated the benefits of driving out the Canaanites, or they overestimated the costs of driving them out, or some combination of the two. In any case, allowing the Canaanites to remain revealed a lack of faith in God's power and a mistrust of his purpose for their lives. Likewise, we can choose to peacefully coexist with sin when we don't see it as sin. One possibility is that we have reduced Christianity to merely avoiding wrong rather than doing right. We may not be wary enough in recognizing spiritual sins, instead focusing exclusively on carnal sins. More likely, we underestimate the seriousness of sin. We may fail to confront sin in our own lives, rationalizing its impact on us, we may fail to confront sin in the lives of others, downplaying its impact on that person or the community of believers. We may not understand God's wrath towards sin while focusing exclusively on his forgiveness and mercy. Or we may view our sin as serious, but we believe that overcoming that sin is beyond us and God. 
And we may view the sins of others as serious, but are unwilling to risk friendships over exhortation or confrontation. But the stakes are too high to live at peace with our three enemies, the world, the devil, and the flesh. James 4, 4 through 8 speaks to all three. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. To do what James talks about, we must work to understand what God considers sin. We must aggressively deal with sin in others, and those who are spiritual must help other believers deal with their sin in truth and in love, restoring him gently, as Paul talks about in the powerful verse Galatians 6.1. Paul is quite explicit about this theme in 1 Corinthians 5 when he rebukes the church at Corinth for being proud about harboring a man who was sleeping with his father's wife. After chastising the church, he then draws an interesting comparison to how we are to treat unbelievers. I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but a sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. And that's 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. In other words, we are to have very high standards for people within the church and few expectations of those outside. We're to deal strictly with sinful people in the church, and in large part, we are to leave outsiders to a God who is perfect at judging behavior and motives as well as taking vengeance. In contrast, we often focus too much on the actions of non-believers, and we typically get the order backwards, spending the least energy on ourselves, more on others in the church, and most on those outside the church. A second principle that emerges from the details of Joshua 13 through 19 might be called unsuccessful battles with sin. In Joshua 15:63, we're told that Judah could not dislodge the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites live there with the people of Judah. And in 1712, we're told that the Manassites were not able to occupy these towns for the Canaanites were determined to live in that region. The fact that they could not implies that they at least tried to drive them out. Perhaps they believed that they needed Joshua to fight their battles for them. In any case, given God's promise to deliver the land into their hands, their failure to drive them out was ultimately the result of their lack of faith in God's provision. For us, this mirrors our struggles with carnal and spiritual sins over which we should have victory. Of course, some sins and strongholds are easier to conquer, so to speak, than others, but it is God's intent that we should be free of as many of these sins as possible. In most cases, as with Achan and the first battle at Ai, the problem is our lack of trust and obedience, which prevents victory. In essence, we have God in our lives, but when it comes to certain battles, we find it difficult to trust God's promises and provision relying mostly on our own inadequate participation. In 1 Samuel 4, Israel's at war with the Philistines. After an initial rout, the Israelites bring the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's presence, to the next battle, instilling them with confidence and their enemies with fear. Although the Israelites had their externals in order, they were rebellious internally, depending not on God but on his Ark as if it were a lucky rabbit's foot. God decided not to be used in this manner and allowed Israel to be defeated and the Ark to be captured. The story ends humorously as God reclaims glory directly that Israel did not win for him indirectly. 
the lesson is clear. We cannot drag God along with us through some passing reference to his name, occasional obedience to his precepts, or random trust in his promises and provision. We must trust him as much as possible, and we must participate as much as we are able, dealing with sin in our camp and taking the risks of faith into which he leads us. A third category can be called controlled maintenance of sin. In Joshua 16.10, we're told that Ephraim did not dislodge the Canaanites living in Gezer. To this day, the Canaanites live among the people of Ephraim, but are required to do forced labor. In 17.13, we read something similar, that the Manassites had initially been unable to occupy some towns, but when they grew stronger, they subjected the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. Again, this may stem from their inability, so to speak, to drive the Canaanites out, or their assessment that doing so would have high costs or little benefit. Another possibility is that this was an attempt to gain additional wealth by using what God had already condemned. This backfired in Judges when the Canaanites rebelled and reversed roles, subjecting the Israelites to forced labor. In any case, given the promises, presence, and provisions of God, again, we observe Israel's failure to participate properly. For us, this is a picture of underestimating sin and dismissing our call to make no compromise with sin in our lives. We allow carnal sins to remain, excusing them because of our past. We allow spiritual sins to remain, excusing them because of our personality. We ignore sins of omission because it is not our spiritual gift or because we do so much else for the kingdom. We befriend the world thinking that our compromises for the sake of popularity can be used for God's kingdom. As a result, we are prideful and live independent from God and his will. We underestimate his righteousness and our sin. We rationalize the impact of those sins on our effectiveness in ministry and on the depth of our relationship with God. A great example of this principle is the third of Saul's three failures in 1 Samuel 13 through 15. Saul is commanded to put the Amalekites to the sword, completely destroying them, devoting them to the Lord, as we've seen here in the book of Joshua. Instead, Saul defeats the Amalekites, but spares the king and, quote, the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good, 1 Samuel 15, 9. Unfortunately, none of what he had saved was truly good since God had ordered it to be destroyed. When Samuel arrives on the scene, Saul claims complete obedience, but Samuel puts the lie to that. In trying to dedicate to God the best of what God has condemned, Saul disobeyed God in a subtle but tragic way. Instead of destroying what he had been called to destroy, he tried to control sin and use it for his purposes, even purposes with the best of intentions. But Samuel's reply is as sobering as it is memorable. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. 1 Samuel 15, verses 22 and 23. This idea of forced labor would continue into Solomon's reign for his building projects. But what makes this especially sad is that unlike the Gibeonites, who were similar back in chapter 9, they were brought into God's promise to carry water and to cut wood. But here, there's no sense that the forced laborers come to know the God of Israel, that they're put in a position even to have that saving knowledge. All right, this is a good time to take a break. If you're on Facebook, like Purity, unfriend me there. Questions and comments are welcome on my Facebook. Previous episodes are available through podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and so on. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. 
In previous segments, we've been talking about the Israelite inheritance out of Joshua 13 through 19. That then led to an application by analogy to our inheritance through Jesus Christ, talking about both what it is and what it is not, and also just the value of an inheritance. We're not slaves, we're sons, and beyond that, we're heirs. We've been given a great inheritance, and this is part of our identity in Christ. In the last segment, we started into what was a beautiful sermon back in the day that I heard from Dwight Edwards on the things that get in the way of us taking our inheritance. And I've covered the first three of six principles. The first was that they did not kick out the Canaanites. The second was they could not kick out the Canaanites. And the third was forced labor. We drew analogies and applications to principles here that did not means they just didn't get around to it. It didn't seem that important to them. Could not implies they were trying but couldn't get the job done. And then forced labor is the idea of actually trying to control the sin, compromising with it to the point of trying to benefit from it. And that's a troubling approach to sin in our own lives. So that takes us to three other principles to cover in this segment. The fourth could be called an obstinate demand for more. In Joshua 17, 14 through 18, we talked about this briefly earlier, but we're told that the Ephraimites and the Manassites complain that their allotment is not large enough. When Joshua encourages them to extend their territory into the hill country, they complain again that the Canaanites there have iron chariots. Joshua simply exhorts them again to take the land in their allotment and whatever land they need beyond that. In a word, their able participation in God's adequate provision would enable them to conquer all the land they required. Again, we see a lack of faith in the Israelites' concerns about the military strength of the Canaanites if they kept God's provisions and promises in mind and how he had worked for them in the past, such concerns should have quickly faded. Note also that the Ephraimites are implicitly questioning God's judgment about the size of their allotment. Through Joshua and the use of the lots, God had divided up the land according to the size of each tribe. Thus they find fault with his competency or his justice. How often we question the omniscience and the justice and the benevolence of God. Another angle is that in pursuing their own selfish interests, the Ephraimites might have thought they'd have an in with Joshua, himself an Ephraimite. In the typical practice of politics, this would not have been a surprising outcome, but Joshua is not swayed by a temptation to engage in favoritism toward his own people. For us, this relates to what we, at least implicitly, demand from God. We want our rights without thinking that the only thing we deserve is death for our sin. We want our agendas fulfilled in our timing without thinking that an omniscient God can provide better answers to our prayers. We want more miracles and more external signs of God's presence and favor without recognizing the tremendous gift of the Holy Spirit, Christ in us. We want God to quickly remove unpleasant circumstances without reference to the way in which we go through our trials. In a word, we want God's provision without our own participation. Of all of the failures of Israel in this lesson, in this sermon, in this chapter in my book, as we talk through these things, this one's probably the most annoying. Lissa Beale notes that Joseph, despite boasting in its numbers, is unwilling to take on the inhabitants. So it's one thing to just fail. It's one thing to understand how difficult the task is or how important it is. 
and then to stumble along the way. And maybe it's even a different sort of problem to compromise or to rationalize. But here you have Joseph through Ephraim and Manasseh, the two tribes that come from Joseph, actually bragging about their strength and then failing to act upon it. The failure of faith and obedience while posing as something else is terribly troubling. We're not going to reread the passage, but if you look at the dialogue between Joshua and the Ephraimites and the Manassites, it's just a dodge and another complaint and an excuse. Joshua is very good about pressing them on the matter, but they continue to just make excuses. And how lame is that to hear people brag and then to just back off and shuffle and make excuses? We also see by way of comparison in the intricate details of chapters 13 through 19 that the Ephraimites and the Manassites look especially lame compared to the accounts of Caleb Exa, who is Caleb's daughter, and the daughters of Zelophehad. And so the text is underlining Joseph's disobedience and how far they fall short of the ideal with respect to faith and obedience. Now, Beale does conclude on a positive note in talking about this failure. She says, despite their negative example, they do continue to be included in all Israel. And in fact, if you look at the tribe of Ephraim in particular, but Manasseh to some extent, there's still an impressive history in front of them. They are able to move forward despite this failure. And so for us, it's the same thing. We can be knuckleheads. We can fall far short. We can brag and then stumble. We can fail to understand our sin on and on and on. But there's always the opportunity for repentance, reconciliation, forgiveness and grace even redemption, recovery, and so on, a lot of times you still have to bear the consequences of the bad decisions. But God is a God of redemption. But the tribes of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, do have a history in front of them as they are redeemed. The mistakes here are not fatal to their future. The fifth principle is called a silent refusal to advance, and this takes us back to Joshua 18 and 19. Early in chapter 18, verses 1 through 3, we were told that the country was brought under their control, but there were still seven Israelite tribes who had not yet received their inheritance. Joshua confronts them in front of the other tribes at the tabernacle meeting in Shiloh and asks, how long will you wait before you begin to take possession of the land that the Lord has given you? Much time had passed since the primary battles had been fought, and apparently each tribe was to initiate their portion of the inheritance. In the interim, they didn't have as much as they could have had, but they had enough to remain comfortable and complacent. As usual, God provided, but also required their participation. For us, this is a picture of complacency stemming from an insufficient understanding of sin and distractions from the world. We're paralyzed by people-pleasing or materialism. We're diverted from the best by the busyness of the good. We're the lazy servant of Matthew 25, 26. We're spooked by imagined or exaggerated fears. We're held back by pride or we stop fighting after winning a major battle. We often fool ourselves into thinking that the status quo is sufficient in God's economy, that we reach some sort of moral equilibrium that God finds pleasing or pleasing enough. But even with our externals looking good, our internals can be slipping. What appears to be godliness from the outside can cover up apathy and eventually rebellion inside. The fact of the matter is that we are either advancing or retreating, we're either growing or stagnant, we're either inheriting or apathetic. Christ's warning to the church at Laodicea should haunt us 
I know your deeds, that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out or vomit you out of my mouth. The idea that our apathy evokes such a passionate response from our Savior should cause us to repent and more zealously follow Christ. A sixth principle could be called sin returns. It's interesting that in chapter 11, verse 21, it says that Joshua went and destroyed the Anakites from the hill country and includes the town of Debir. If you look at Joshua 15, 15, it says Caleb marched against the people living in Debir. And so we have here a picture of sin returning. This was surely a problem for Israel that by not exterminating every single person, there would have been opportunities for rebellion, or by leaving pockets, as we've talked about, by not fully dealing with what they were supposed to do, then that would have invited trouble in the future. For us, the parallels are quite obvious, right? That just because we deal with something in the chapter 11 of our life doesn't mean it won't reappear in chapter 15. And sometimes this is just the way it goes. We're not going to completely vanquish sin, particularly something that's more of the besetting sin sort of thing. All of us struggle with different sorts of things, and we're never going to be fully freed of those. So we just continue to battle, and sometimes it sneaks up on us. Sometimes we can see it coming. Sometimes it's a focus of a particular context or time of life that these things can bite us, but they're going to reappear. Other times we're just stupid about it, right? That Things are reappearing because we invite them back. They're dead, but we give them life again. We resurrect sin in our own lives by restarting relationships or indulging a certain habit or engaging in certain things that we do or say or the people we hang around with. And so we invite sin back into our lives. And we want to be careful not to do that. There's no need to slow down the inheritance of our promised land, to give back land unnecessarily. It's going to happen anyway. There's going to be, within the fruit and the fight of the promised land, there'll be times when defeat comes in any given battle. And yes, the war is won, but we want to limit the defeats that we face in battles. How do you do this? Well, for one thing, you're not just focused on pulling weeds, but planting flowers, in my own life, I've found that when I'm doing more positive things, then it makes it a lot easier to avoid the negative things. When I'm bored, complacent, have time on my hands, I'm not doing very much, then I'm more prone to get myself into trouble. Or maybe I become too busy. I tend to struggle with pride, so actually it can go the other way as well. If I'm too busy, then I become too independent and too impressed by myself too easily and I can drift away from God and so that sin can rise up and bite me again. So I have to be careful to stay balanced as all of us do to stay appropriately busy with the work of the kingdom but not doing things in our own strength, staying in the word, staying in prayer, staying in community with like-minded disciples and disciple makers who are on the same path with us, having transparent relationships with others who can help us, who know us well enough, who have the wisdom and courage to speak, and who we've allowed to speak into our lives as we live transparently with others in community of the church and in community with the Spirit and Jesus.
In commenting on the Israelites' failures, as we've talked about in these segments, Matthew Henry describes their failure to deal with their enemies completely as sluggishness, stupidity, and unbelief. Likewise, we must take care not to fall prey to these three ugly cousins. Even after a lifetime of spiritual victory, there remains much land still to be won. Dear Lord, we thank you for the greatness of your inheritance, not just that you save us for heaven, but you give us a great inheritance now. We pray that we would have the wisdom to know how to pursue it, the courage to do so, and would be smart about embracing spiritual disciplines and Christian community to help us achieve that. We don't want to leave anything on the table, Lord. We want to follow you with complete faith and obedience. Help us to do that in the days to come. In Jesus' name. Amen. It's been good to be with you today. We hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet.